0: Okay, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to John 1 19 through 51. Um, so, this, this, we actually just got back last night from a family trip to, so I grew up in California, and my whole side of the family is still in California, and we uh, were there for my little sister's wedding, and she got married on Friday night. And so it was, you know, we actually were at the wedding late Friday night, flew in yesterday. So we're still jet lagging a little bit, but we're really excited to be back. Uh, while we were there, we were sharing uh, a house, my parents' house. They went and stayed in their RV down closer to where the wedding venue was, about 45 minutes away. And we took over their house with our family and then my little brother and his wife. And so we were sharing a house with them. They, uh, So they are, I grew up in Northern California and they live in, Southern California in a city called Pasadena where the Rose Parade is and the Rose Bowl is. And then we live in Florida. So they call us the Florida Slavages and we call them the Pasadena Slavages. So the Florida Slavages and the Pasadena Slavages took over the house together. I was talking with my brother about his job that he's had now for less than a year. And he's in HR and he's in recruiting. And he was telling me about his job and how like 90% of his recruiting is on LinkedIn and he's doing LinkedIn. He's, he was sending, like, you know, we were driving around, he's sending messages in LinkedIn. And he's checking LinkedIn and all these things for how he's recruiting people and a part of what his job is to get people into the company that he works for and getting them, you know, situated in a job that might be right for them and would be a benefit to the company as well. And it got me thinking about recruiting and how, how, and how, does, how Jesus recruits people to follow him. And as we're looking at the text this morning, this is a passage I've been really excited to talk about. How does Jesus recruit people to follow him? Uh, Jesus didn't have LinkedIn. There, there is a, a movement of the Spirit in the other room, so we're just going to pray for them. Um, uh, how does Jesus recruit people to follow him? We see this in John 1:19 through 51. Uh, and so I'm actually not going to read the whole text Sequentially, We'll read it as we go along. It's a long text, but there's a lot here, and we're going to see two basic movements of how Jesus recruits people to follow him and then some sub, some, some sub points under that. But before we do that, let's just pray. Let's ask for God's help as we look into the Word. Father in heaven, I ask that you would meet us now, Lord Jesus Holy Spirit, blessed Trinity, that you would speak to us through your word, that we would see what we're supposed to see, what you have put into the text here through John who wrote this so many years ago. And you would help us and shape us after the image of Christ through this this word. And we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So how does Jesus recruit people? The first way is through confessional prophetic witness. Confessional prophetic witness. This is the first half of the text. We're, we say confessional prophetic witness. That sounds like, you know, sort of like, ambig- what, what does that mean? What does confessional prophetic witness mean? And we're going to see that in the person of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a confessional prophetic witness. And and so we're going to see here uh, four movements of confessional prophetic witness. And the first is this, to respond to interrogation. Respond to interrogation. You see here in the first verse of this passage, uh, in verse 19, it says, This was John's testimony. When the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? So, so he gets questioned. So John's out in, in, the, you know, in the wilderness. He's baptizing people. He's telling people, you know, there's going to be this prophet who comes after me, this great anointed one to come after me. And, and he's doing all these things. And the, and the Jews and the Jewish leadership want to know, who are you and why are you here? Who are you? And, and as, as followers of Jesus and as Christians and as a church, we should always be living our life in such a way that people are going to have questions about what we're doing, about why we say what we say, about why we live the way we live. This doesn't mean we're perfect by any means. We were joking earlier before the service about the, the, you know, you know, the, the family on the way to church and how it's like stressful and everyone's fighting And then it gets to church, you put your smile on, right? So we're not talking about faking it, but we are talking about living a life of some sort of consistency in the light of the gospel, in such a way that people ask, well, why why is that the case? Why is that the case? That you respond to questions and that, that in such a way that your life, your life is pointing toward, your words are pointing toward. Something that causes people to ask you questions. And this could be friendly questions. This could be more like interrogation type, persecution type questions. But you always have to be prepared, 1 Peter 3.15, to respond. Confessional prophetic witness, secondly, is is a movement of denying what you should deny. You have to deny what you should deny. Denying. I'm going to try to keep um, moving out of the way so you can read the screen if you don't have your Bibles. By the way, we are using a, a version of the Bible called the CSB, Christian Standard Bible. Um, and so that's, it's a newer translation that we use that, that uh, I think is really, really great. And um, so that's what we use. And, uh, and that's what's up on the screen. It says John didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. He didn't deny, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. So there is something about confession or speaking. The word confession there means to say the same word, to speak affirmatively. So part of what being a witness means is to deny what we should deny. He didn't deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. What then, they asked him. Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. As a church and as a Christian, part of our witness means denying things that we know are not true. We have to deny things that we know are not in light, or that that are not in accord with what God has revealed in His Word, and with the truth of the Scripture, and with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We can't just be pro, we also have to be against. We, we have to be specific about what we believe in the area of our theological beliefs, in the area of our ethical beliefs, in the area of all, all of these things that God has revealed in His Word. There are levels of things that are, um, that, that, that are more central and less central. So like the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of Jesus in His person and work, fully God and fully man, the, the atonement. These things are like non-negotiable. Then there are other things like the end times and maybe some political opinions of some kind that may be a little bit more flexible. There are ethical questions of morality that are non-negotiable, sexual ethics, and these sorts of things that that you really can't compromise on and call yourself a Christian in any meaningful sense of the word. And then there are things that, that maybe there's some room to disagree on about how to do something or the other, but we have to be willing to deny what we should deny and to say, no, we don't agree with this. We don't agree with this. We have to deny what we should deny. But then on the other hand, thirdly, we have to affirm what we should affirm. You have to affirm what you should affirm. You have to affirm what you should affirm. As John says here in um, verses 22 through 37, and this is really the rest of this this first movement of confessional prophetic witness, affirm what you should affirm first biblically. Affirm what you should affirm first biblically. Who are you, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. And they're asking him this question. And he says, "I. what can you tell us about yourself? He says, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. And so what John says is, I am this prophesied person, this voice who would be straightening out the pathway of the Lord before his coming. And there he's quoting a verse from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, where God promises to send this prophetic witness, a prophet, one who speaks for God. What's a witness? It's testimony, speaking the truth. What is confession? Saying the same word, saying and and affirming what is true and saying it publicly so people can see. He says, I am this person that God had prophesied. In the same way, we have to make sure that what we believe and what we affirm is in line with the Scripture, that everything we do, everything we say as a church or as Christians is in line with the Scripture. Too often, we're formed and we're shaped by social media feeds Or cable news shows and opinion shows, we are shaped by all of these things that are discipling us. They're shaping our opinions and our mindset, and they may or may not be biblical. We have to affirm what we should affirm biblically. We got to get into the scripture. We got to learn the Bible. We need to study it. We need to memorize it. We need to we need we need to have it saturate our mind. I was thinking about this the other day when. I was trying uh, to, and, you know, we, we traveled, I said, this week, and we're time-changed, we're tired, and all these things, and so my kids are watching this show on Netflix. It wasn't a bad show. Um, and then I'm writing a sermon, and I just thought, how much is this show they're watching for however long they're watching it, shaping their imagination? And here I am, spending this time studying the Bible to deliver a 37-minute message. That's my, that's my sweet spot, by the way, um, and I, was so, I mean, getting better at, at trying to hit that every week. Um, how 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 can the the church compete with Netflix? Because you all are like me you're you're binge watching, right? You're like one. Do you want to watch the next episode? Yes, even though you know I know I should go to bed, but I'm going to watch it anyway. And Amazon Prime or whatever your DVR or whatever it may be, and you're watching this stuff and it's shaping your imagination, and you expect a 37-minute message to compete with that. No, this is not enough to shape your mindset. You must be in the Word for yourself. You must be in community. You must be letting the Word of God shape your heart and your mind. You have to affirm what you should affirm biblically. Second, you should affirm what you should affirm contextually, contextually. Look at verse 28 and then again in verse 39. All of this happened in Bethany, Across the Jordan, where John was baptizing, and then later in another. This is not the same. No, the, notice the verses move. The narrative is changing. The storyline. It's a different part of the story. But it says it was four in the afternoon. And my point in bringing this up is that all of this happened not in some generic like Bible town place, but in some sort of you know like like generic like Holy Land. It, what this happened in a specific location, Bethany. And it happened at a specific time, four in the afternoon or the 10th hour. There is no such thing as generic spirituality. There is no such thing as being a Christian in a generic sense. You are always a Christian at a specific time in a specific place. And for you and for me, that is 2019 in South Florida. And then there are different nuances within that. So it might be for you, 2019 in South Florida, most specifically, mostly in Boca, or mostly in Lighthouse Point, or mostly in Pompano, or Coral Springs, or wherever it may be. And and your life is lived in a specific place at a specific time. And you can never escape that. And God has put you where He's put you on purpose, by design, for your good and His glory, to shape you into the image of His Son. To witness to the truth of who he is, and just to pursue the common good. I was thinking about this. Like, um, there's a there's a uh, a person we go to who cuts our family's hair, and uh, she does a great job. And uh, her name is Aga, and she's from uh, originally from Poland. And I was thinking about the dignity of her job. It's like she she's a hairstylist, but like. Just think, like, sometimes we think, like, being a pastor or, or something like that is, like, some sort of, like, super righteous thing. And I believe, I believe it is. I, w- I wouldn't be doing it. But how much, how much common good is she bringing into the world by cutting my hair and my kid's hair before a wedding? I mean, isn't the, she's bringing a blessing into the world by doing that. Now, it's not the same as being a missionary or a pastor, but it has inherent dignity. And in the same way, your work has inherent dignity. And it may not be Christian work, but it still has value for the world and for the Lord. And He still delights in what you're doing. And, and, and He has called you to the place you are in this moment. Your calling might change. You may be in a season of discerning what that might be. But He has got you where He has you at this place in this time for as long as he has you there so that you can be a confessional prophetic witness to speak truth, to live truth. The, the third movement of uh, this confessional prophetic witness of affirming what you should affirm is theologically, theologically. And actually, if we could go to the next slide, I think I put the wrong uh, verse there. Um, there John... Now, theological, that's a big word, you know, like what is that talking about? Well, it just means the talk about God. It just means talk about God. That's all it means. It means what do we say about God and about the things around God. Specifically here, this is Christological. This is talk about Christ. This is who Jesus is. And John says, Jesus is preeminent. Look, he is coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. The next thing he says is, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That when Jesus offered up his life as a sacrifice on the cross, he did it so that those who would believe in him would be forgiven their sin and given eternal life. He takes away the sin of the world. The world here means that the entire created order most specifically, every type of person, black or white or brown or rich or poor, old or young, Republican or Democrat, whoever you are, Jesus, His sacrifice is sufficient to take away your sin. When He hung on the cross and the bad news of your sin was brought into full view that it cost the Son of God His life to forgive you. And the depth of God's love was shown, as God loved you enough to give His one and only Son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John is pointing people to this. Look at what else John says here in verse 30. He says, this is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me, because he existed before me. Now, what you have to understand is that John was born six months before Jesus. So for him to say he existed before me means he is affirming that Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. Jesus pre-existed his earthly life. He is the eternal God. We saw that a couple of weeks ago in John 1, 1 through 18, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Look what else he says. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. John is saying that my ministry is for the revelation and elevation of someone else. And just the same way, your life is for the revelation and the elevation of Jesus Christ in what you say, and what you do, how you live. Look at the next thing he says. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it rested on him. God the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have this conspiracy to turn the world back the way it should be. And so God the Son comes and becomes a human man and the Holy Spirit descends from heaven on him like a dove and he is filled with the Spirit in his humanity and he is testifying to who God is and what God has done and and he is full of the Spirit and that is the reason the next verse says that he, the one who you see so John said, I didn't know him, but he sent me to baptize with water. And he told me, the one who sent me, the one who you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So God the Father sends God the Son, and then God the Father and God the Son fill the people of God with the Holy Spirit. Pastor Darrell talk, talked a couple weeks ago about how the mark of a, a true, healthy church is that the Spirit is there. I mean, that's really what we have to offer the world. You know, they could go go anywhere and sit in a room and listen to someone talk. They could go to a concert if they want to hear music. There are lots of opportunities for their kids to have fun and maybe learn something along the way. But what we have to offer is something no other thing in this world can offer, and that is God himself in the person of Jesus Christ and in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Next thing he says... I have seen and testified, witnessed to the fact that this is the Son of God. A son, you know, if, if my son is, among other things, a human like me, and for Jesus to be called the Son of God affirms that he is himself also God with the Father, one God in three persons. Affirm what you should affirm Theologically, Jesus is preeminent, the Lamb of God, eternal, revealed by John, filled with the Spirit, the filler of the Spirit, the Son of God. And then finally, the fourth movement of confessional prophetic witness ends with people following Jesus. Now, I know some of you, um, maybe you're probably not aware of this, but there's this whole like weird, like internet like subculture of people who are uh, trying to point people to the truth through these things called blogs. This is like this old-fashioned medium. Now I know everyone's on Facebook and TikTok and all this stuff. There's things called blogs, and people will write these articles, and they try to speak truth into the internet. But often what some of these are helpful, but sometimes they're just angry people saying things and, and and without love and without grace, and it never works the way it's supposed to because it doesn't end with people following Jesus. Confessional prophetic witness, speaking the truth prophetically, speaking the truth about God, not just foretelling the future, but foretelling the present, the truth that is here and now, as the prophets did in the Old Testament, oh, half the time, they weren't just predicting the future, they were telling the truth about the present, Ends with people following Jesus. John was standing with two of his disciples and we saw Jesus passing by. He said, Look, the Lamb of God, the two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. Confessional prophetic witness means that people follow Jesus, both for the first time, both for the first time in becoming Christians, and also in an ongoing sense. That as a church, we must be always ready and open handed with where God may lead people. J.D. Greer, uh, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, pastor of a great church in Raleigh-Durham, written a bunch of books, has a radio show. He says a church is defined and its success is defined not by its seeding capacity, but by its sending capacity. And we want to be a church who is always willing to send out co-laborers into the harvest fields of God. So the first movement, confessional prophetic witness. The second ordinary followers of Jesus making followers of Jesus. Ordinary followers making followers of. This multiplicative, this multiplying effect of the people of God. These two disciples follow Jesus and they're confronted with the question everyone has to answer. The question everyone has to answer. I think this is here in verse 38. Jesus turned, he noticed them following him, and he asked them, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? And that's the question every one of us, every one of you has to answer. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? We talk a lot here, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but also seriously about the killer bees, right? The killer bees of South Florida and this part of South Florida is Birthday parties, ball games, brunches, boat excursions, We could add bank accounts, you know, benzes, uh, could be any, anything, right? Any, if you think of a good B, let me know. We'll just keep adding to the list. What are you looking for in these things? Maybe, maybe it's not those things for you, maybe it's something else. I was talking with Laura, my wife, the other day, and I've had two dreams for a long time. Um... Well, lots of dreams, but one was to get married to a cute blonde girl. I did, okay, so that's check, have some kids, check, check. Then the other two things were I I always wanted to plant a church, and I always wanted to get a PhD. And so I decided it would probably be very wise of me to try to do both of those at the same time. And so uh, we're planting this church, and I'm trying to finish my Ph.D. dissertation at the same time. And I told Laura, I said, I guess I didn't really think through the fact that I'm trying to pursue all of my dreams all at the same time. And she said, yeah, you kind of are. And you know what I found in that, just to be totally candid with you? None of it is enough. None of it's enough. None of it's enough. You can get everything you ever wanted, and it will not be enough. It will never be enough. Your family will never be enough. Your, your, Your... pursuing and, and trying to get whatever it is you're really interested in, and it's probably not a geek like me, it's maybe not PhD, maybe not planting a church, maybe it is planting church, maybe God's going to call some of you to plant churches and we'll send you out like, like we just talked about. But I don't know what that is for you, but I can tell you, some of you already know from experience and some of you may have to learn the hard way, it will never be enough because only Jesus is enough. Only Jesus is enough. What are you looking for? And I can tell you the answer is that whether you realize it or not, you are looking for Jesus. If he is not enough for you in the midst of those things, whatever those things may be, they will never be enough without him. The question everyone has to answer, what are you looking for? Then we see the offer that Jesus makes. The offer that Jesus makes. So these disciples, it's kind of a weird Request. They say rabbi, which means teacher. John wrote this um, uh, gospel in the, the Greek language, and he's translating some words from what Jesus spoke, which is called Aramaic, which is like a, a, a sort of like Hebrew, but a little bit different. And he's translating it for a Greek audience, people who would understand, wouldn't understand necessarily what these words mean, rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Come and you'll see. He replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, and it was about four in the afternoon. This is the offer that Jesus makes. Come, and you'll see. You know, they're like, try it before you buy it, right? Come and see. Come and see. Come and you'll see. Come and see, and I'll show you what you're looking for. I'll show you what you're looking for. If you will just come and see. Come and look. You know, there was an old hippie Christian song back in the day called, Why Don't You Look Into Jesus? He's Got the Answer by a guy named Larry Norman. Why don't you look into Jesus? He's got the answer. Why don't you check out Jesus? He's got the answer. Come and you'll see. And then we see this this next movement for the re- through the rest of the narrative, followers making followers. And so we see here, All sorts of different ways people start following Jesus. So we talked about how does Jesus recruit people? Well, first, he starts with John as this confessional prophetic witness in the desert, and two of John's followers follow Jesus. But how does Jesus continue to build his church? How does he build up his followership? How does he get disciples to follow him? And here we see Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. So that's one of the, the first ways. John says, there's Jesus, and Andrew goes, cool, I'm going with him. And John says, as you should. John will say later, John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. So this is one way, followers making followers. John pointing the way. And so some people, they follow Jesus. Some, some person points them to Jesus. A teacher, a sermon they heard, a YouTube video, they, someone points them to Jesus, and they follow Jesus. But then look at what happens next. In verses 41 and 42, it says, Andrew found his own brother Simon, Peter, and told him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Peter. So how do people follow Jesus? How does Jesus recruit people? Well, sometimes it's from a prophetic voice pointing them the way. Other times it's through family coming alongside. And literally, he led him to Jesus. He brought him. But it literally could mean he led him to Jesus. Sometimes we say someone led someone to the Lord. Well, here it's very literally. Simon's like, hey, come here. Seriously, check this out. You bring someone to Jesus and you let Jesus do the rest. Jesus is not at a loss for how to speak into the life of a person. Jesus knows exactly what people need, and he knows exactly what to say. And when you bring them into the presence of Jesus, now how do you, you say, how do I do that? It's not like he's physically here. It's like easy for Andrew. It's like Jesus is here. It's like Peter, Jesus, Jesus, Peter. Hey, nice to meet you. How do we do that now? You bring people into the presence of Jesus through prayer. You bring people into the presence of Jesus through corporate worship and gathering of the church. You bring people into the presence of Jesus by exposing them to the Scripture and studying the Bible with them. You say, "Well, I don't know that much about the Bible. How can I study the Bible with people?" It's like, it's like any, teaching anything. You just have to be at least one week ahead. All right. So as long as you're one week ahead of them, you can just you can you you can just you, know, you study, and then the next week you study that with them, and then you study some more, and then next week you study that with them, whatever it may be. You say they say, "I don't." I don't understand this. Say, I don't understand it either. Maybe we can figure it out together. Bring people to Jesus. Bring people to Jesus through all of these different ways, and the real living Jesus will meet them at that place through his word, through his spirit. Notice what he says to Peter. You will be called Cephas, or Peter. Jesus gives him a new name. a, A name in the ancient world was so much more important than it is today. Like, now we just pick names because we think they sound cool, you know, or they're, like, you look on the most popular baby names, and it's not too high up the, far up the list, so there won't be, like, seven Olivias, even though that was, like, really high on the list, you know, or, you know, we, we chose our daughter's Adeline, Adeline's name. We'd literally never known of a kid named Adeline, and now there's, like, 57, you know, just. You pick names for all sorts of different reasons, but in the ancient world, names were closely tied into Identity. And the meaning of the name had a lot to do with the character of a person. And so when Jesus says, you will be called Cephas, he, he's doing something radical there. Something that only God has the right to do. He's changing his identity. He's changing his identity. And as we know, Peter becomes one of the most important Christians to ever live. And his brother Andrew brought him. To Jesus. Look at the, re- the The next, the next way someone finds Jesus in verses 30, 43 and forty-four. Um, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, "Follow me." So, so sometimes Jesus, he comes directly to the person. And, and there's a um a great book that I was talking with Gary about called The Insanity of God. It's kind of a weird title. But it's all these people in the majority world who are having dreams about meeting Jesus. And then what Jesus does is he sends a messenger and says, I want you to go to such and such a place. And they say, why? And they don't know why. And it turns out there's someone there who had a dream that someone was going to come and tell them the truth. And then Jesus puts these people together. So Jesus Jesus can direct, sometimes people, they, they read the Bible, they're just reading the Bible, and they, they meet Jesus. Jesus comes to Philip, and he says, come and follow me. Now, Philip, verse 44, was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. And Philip, look at verse 45, verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we've found the one Moses wrote about in the law And so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. So again, people find Jesus in all sorts of different ways. We should say more accurately, Jesus finds people in all sorts of different ways. But the primary way he does it is through personal relationships. Most people come to Jesus because someone who cared about them brought them to Jesus. Either directly or indirectly either through directly witnessing to them, bringing them to church, sharing information with them, sending them a video or a podcast, studying the Bible with them. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about. Look at how Nathanael responds. Nathanael is an elitist intellectual. Look at verse 46. This is the second half here. Can anything good come out of nazareth nazareth was kind of like a backwater and it's like you know someone who's from like uh an urban you know economic hub a a center city type of environment saying you know this person is from you know i don't want to make fun of any state or region of the country so i'm going to let you put in your mind what you think of when you think of that but this is who this is who this is who nathaniel was can anything good, maybe we'll just say Davy. Can we say Davy? No, I'm just kidding. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's he's, he's, I'm, he's too sophisticated. He, he knows too much. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? If God was going to change the world, if God was going to bring the Messiah, was he really, is he really going to do it out of Nazareth? Look at what Philip says. Come and see. It's the same thing Jesus said earlier. Come and see. Just come and see. Come and try. Come and check it out. Come and look into Jesus, and Jesus will do the rest. Look at what he does in verse 47 through 51. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he says, Behold, truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. So he's like, man, this guy's got no filter, right? We all know those people; they don't have a filter. They just say what they think. And this is Nathaniel. He's not going to lie. You know, you're never at a loss for wondering what Nathaniel thinks. And he says, "Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit." And then Nathaniel says, "How do you know me?" And Jesus says, "Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you." Jesus will do the rest. He will speak into the life of a person in a way that you could never know and never could because he is both fully God and fully man. And he sees him under the fig tree. And Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus responded to him. Do you believe because you saw? I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see even greater things than this. Then he said, Truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's a reference to Genesis 28. Jacob is fleeing from his brother Esau who wants to kill him. And he falls asleep and spends the night uh, in, in a place called Bethel. And he sleeps on a rock and he has a vision of a ladder from heaven to earth and angels are going up and down. And what what Jesus is saying is, I am the way to the Father. I am the way to heaven. I am the bridge between heaven and earth. And he says, you think it's amazing I told you what you were doing when Philip called you. You're laying under the tree. You're going to see even greater things than these. You're going to see heaven break through and touch earth. So how does Jesus recruit people? Well, We've seen a number of ways, confessional, prophetic witness, but more often, it's just ordinary followers making more followers. It's people like you and me who have met Jesus telling other people, come and see. There's a theologian and pastor um, a long time ago named St. Augustine. It's actually where we got the name for the first city of America, St. Augustine, and um, but uh, most likely pronounced Augustine in terms of the guy, his name. And he was a pastor in the late 300s, early 400s AD, so like a long time ago. And, and St. Augustine preached a message on this passage. I was reading it last night. On a day when there was a huge pagan festival in their city. And they called it the Festival of Blood. And like scholars don't know what that means. It's like really weird and creepy. And at the end of the sermon he says I'm sorry I preached so long. I was trying to finish so I was trying to let the festival finish before I finished. I was trying to I was trying to outlast them so you guys wouldn't be tempted to go and t- take part of this. And he says I've detained you somewhat longer than usual to let this unseasonable occasion run its course. Most likely those people must now have concluded their nonsense. He's talking about this festival that they're having out in the city where they lived. As for us, brothers and sisters, when we have been fed at the banquet of salvation, let us carry out what remains to be done so that we may complete the Lord's day with joyful spiritual celebrations and compare the joys of truth with the joys of futility. And if we are horrified by them, let us grieve. If we grieve, let us pray. If we pray, may we be heard. If we are heard, we will win those people tr- too. If we're grieved by the world around us and what's happening in the world, I don't, know, I don't know how you could be even a little bit aware of what's happening in the world without being grieved by so many things happening in the world. People you love who are throwing themselves headlong into things you know won't fix it for them. People are throwing themselves into sin, throwing themselves into things that you know will not satisfy the lo- what they're looking for and the longing that they have. And you grieve and we grieve as we see the world around us. And what Augustine says is if you're horrified and if you're horrified by that, you see these horrific things, then your first duty is to grieve. And if you grieve to pray. And when you pray, God may give you a hearing, and if he gives you a hearing, then Jesus will do what only Jesus can do. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would use us, normal, ordinary followers of Jesus, to recruit more ordinary followers of Jesus. As a church that we may be confessional prophetic witness as people we may be a confessional prophetic witness as ordinary followers making followers as Andrew found Simon and Philip found Nathaniel and they said just come and see Lord Jesus I I just pray that as we think about what we're looking for even those of us who follow you we constantly have have Discontent in our hearts. We're constantly thinking that the next thing may do it for us. When in reality, none of it will ever be enough without you. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, Lord, I just pray you would help us to be satisfied in you, Lord Jesus. That the bread and the juice that we take now would somehow nourish us with the presence of Christ so that He would be sufficient for us. In Jesus' name.